In the city of Austin, it takes me anywhere from eight to 12 months. A lot of it literally is driven by inspections because we're waiting on the city for a lot of things and we've got a lot of places in between that we're stopping. I could probably do the same project in the county in five to six. Welcome to Shovel Ready. Here to inspire, educate, and entertain you by breaking down the real estate development process. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and leave a positive review to help us attract more quality guests. And now, your hosts, Jason Chow and Lynn Curry. How's it going, everybody? Jason Chow here with Shovel Ready and my... I don't know, lovely? I can be lovely sometimes. Talented. Talented. Definitely talented. (laughs) How's it going, Lynn? What's going on in your negative neighborhood? Good. Good. Just, you know, doing the same thing I do every day. And that I tell you to that answer every day that you asked me. Still building houses, (laughs) doing small development deals. Yeah. Living the dream. Things Uh, happen. Cool, cool, cool. Working in too many spreadsheets. How's the the concrete or bunker house coming along? Oh, the bunker house is moving again. That was a a painful little bump in the road. We had to change a couple contractors. And uh, so I found some some new folks and uh, we're, I mean, we're still early in it. We're still pouring a lot of concrete, but uh, it's coming along. It's going to be lovely. And and by the end of probably by this time next week, it's going to be on a normal, let's call it a normal house timeline, as opposed to all the excavation and crazy stuff we had to do at the front end. Yeah. So who's our guest today? I think it's me. Oh, is it you? Oh, am I wrong? (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, so I mean, it makes (laughs) no, it makes it simpler. I mean, obviously. You have general contracting and building background and honestly can't think of anybody better than than you. And you know, we we get to just kind of dive into some some of the nitty-gritty stuff here today. I mean, in this process, you know, we talked a lot about looking at numbers and working with brokers, designing a bunch of things, and now finally we get to build something, you know, making something rise out of the ground. There's a lot to cover, obviously. We hope we, I hope we get to all of it, but I think I want to, number one, hear a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into this, uh, a little bit just for folks, basic kind of what, what an actual GC does. I think some people have some misconception that they're just, you know, out there swinging hammers, don't know what they're doing. It's actually, you know, there's a lot involved. And then hopefully we have some time to to go down on some, specific or that the between the the dynamic or relationship between an owner um, or a developer and along with the with the GC. So sounds good. Yeah, sounds great. So Let's do it. How did you get into this? Like you must have studied construction management or yeah. a lot of engineering degree kind of thing, right? Yeah, no. No. So I uh, I came out of the University of Texas with a photojournalism degree. And the sad part about that was I'm not really that great of a photographer. So <laughs> so that wasn't going to be my career choice. Although I do have a pretty good, you know, pretty good scrapbook collection of photographs and that sort of thing. I guess we don't call those scrapbooks anymore. But I've got a, a bunch of really great photographs I've taken for myself, but not professionally. And uh, one of the things I did when I was in college was I was reading a bunch of the, the real estate books 
And it was something that I really understood. It like made sense to me. It's like, here are the numbers, you know, here's how you do it and all that good fun stuff. So right out of college, I ended up with a pretty good job uh, in the printing industry, which is completely different today than it was, I guess, when did I graduate? I graduated in 1994, so many years ago. And it was, so it was a really great job. And so my other friends that were getting jobs were out, you know, they were buying their new cars and all this other stuff. And I started buying houses. So at that point, I kind of started my real estate investment career. And as I moved through my career, I left the printing world. I actually ended up starting and owning uh, an advertising agency for, gosh, I guess we did that for, I'd have to go back and do the math, but close to 20, 15, 20 years, did advertising and all along the way kept doing real estate investment. And one of the things I was doing was anytime we needed space for the business, I would buy something. So we started in a little one. So I had a little commercial building and then we needed a bigger one and it kind of went from there. So I started, so over the years, I collected some residential properties that were rentals. I, I didn't, I've never flipped houses other than doing work on the rentals and then eventually selling them, but it was never, they were bought as a flip. They were bought as rentals. And then same thing with the commercial properties. Some of them I bought already finished out, already complete. And then like one of them, our biggest one that we bought and then had to do a big remodel on it. And then in the course of that, did a house remodel, but I hired a GC for that. And I was looking for my exit from advertising. As the agency kept growing, it, I started moving into roles that I didn't really enjoy. I, was, I went from being a creative director, which is a creative role, to having to manage a bunch of folks. And I had two business partners in the agency. And uh, I just decided that's not what I really wanted to be when I grew up and I was apparently grown up. So at that point, I started making my exit, sold my shares in the company to my business partners and started building houses because a friend of mine did it and taught me how to do it. <laughs> so at that point, I started building. I already had a pretty good real estate background, started building. And now I do primarily building. I do specs, I do customs, and I do small development work. So urban infill mostly. So, you know, maybe take a really big lot and subdivide it into two smaller, three smaller, depending on the size. Um, I'm doing some development work out in the county now, but it's still kind of in the realm of the goal is to build houses. Okay, cool. What's, what were those books that you read? I'm just curious. Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. I think one of them was probably a Robert Kawasaki book. And then there was one that was, um, what was the guy's name? Everybody would know it. Jim somebody, James somebody. It was like making money for the 2000s was one of them. Oh, okay. or, or real estate investing for the 2000s. It was a, one of the guys that had a series of books. But it, and then I, you know, some on landlording, some really basic ones, you know, I can't even remember what they were, but it was just, it kind of talked about how you make money in real estate. Okay. You know, the, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a how-to guide. It was more th theoretical in collecting assets and that sort of thing. I see. And so for folks that are unfamiliar with this area, can you explain a little bit what the difference between spec versus custom build is? Yeah. So on a spec house, what I do is I'm essentially building a house to sell it. I go out and I buy the dirt, which since I do most mostly infill, it's usually got an old house on it. And uh, I'm in Austin, which is uh, 
there were a lot of houses, post-war homes built in Austin. So a lot of the, a lot of the construction or the older houses are forties. And then of course that you get this for, as you go further out, you get fifties, sixties, seventies on up to 2011, whatever I'm doing a remodel on a 2011 house right now. So anyway, so you buy the land you te- or you buy the house, you tear down the house, you build a house or I build a house of my own design. And I don't, I shouldn't say my own design. I hire an architect and then we build it and we put it on the market to sell versus a custom where a client comes to me and they may or may not have architectural plans at that I, at that point, or they may or may not even have a place to build a house at that point. And I do all the work that they want me to do. So one of the biggest differences, you know, in a, in a custom, I've got a client that I'm managing in addition to the project that I'm managing. And I'm really more of a technician. I'm a, I have a good design eye, so I'm more than happy to assist my clients in selections and that sort of thing, but I'm not their designer. So. Right. Yeah. So what I'm hearing say is custom, like you said, there is already a buyer, a homeowner you're building for that person versus spec. You know, you're kind of thinking what you what will fit the market or you're putting your view and the architect's view on it, but you don't know who it's going to end up buying that per se. Right. Right. And I, I think what I didn't say that is a really big distinction is on the spec, I'm building it all with my money. I've bought the land with my money. Mm. I'm building the house with my money. Um, so I have a whole financial side that is different than on a custom that is being financed by a client and I'm building for a fee, essentially. Right. Okay. And so just for, again, for folks that are not familiar with this, what is the general process of building, whether it's a spec or custom home, but what does that process look like? What are the major jobs or milestones to, to hit? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest, well, not the biggest, it's, it all starts and it's, this is different with specs and customs, but with specs, it all starts with, you know, the financial picture. Well, let's just focus on the actual building part. Okay. Assuming, you know, we got the plans, we got the construction loans and all that, and we're literally ready, ready. we got the permits, we're ready to- I was going to ask, do we have the permits yet? Yeah, we're shovel ready, we're ready to yeah. ready to break ground. What do you do first? What, what do you do first? Well, so it'll some, it somewhat varies from city to city or municipality to municipality. There's a few extra steps. You'll you'll get them in California. We get them in Austin. So in Austin, what we have to start with is a pre-construction meeting that includes environmental controls and tree protection, assuming there are protected trees on the lot, which almost every lot I build in. I think I've, I've had one in the last 10 years that didn't have protected trees. So it starts with an environmental inspection. We make sure we get all of the environmental controls in place. So all the silt fencing, I mean, it's mostly just silt fencing. There's a, there's some green sock things across driveways and that sort of thing. What we're what we're doing there is we're making sure that once we start construction, we don't get any runoff into other people's yards or into the storm drains. Which, from the city's perspective, I think the storm drains are technically more important. But from but from their inspect from their perspective, also they don't want neighbors yelling, you know, calling them and yelling at them. And then same thing, we make sure we have to make sure all of our tree protection is put up. We have a fairly strict tree ordinance as far as what kind of trees are protected and what sizes. Basically, anything over 19 inches in diameter gets protected in the city of Austin. So usually what that entails is maybe some mulch, maybe some plywood over the mulch if there's any possibility that any heavy equipment's going to be driving over over the root zone. 
Um, it usually has fencing around it. Well, always has fencing around it. And then sometimes has batter boards, which are basically two by fours up and down the trunk so that if by chance something hits the tree, it doesn't damage the trunk. From there, once we get that all taken care of, we move into foundation. And the foundation, the foundation and the framing are kind of are probably two of the biggest time chunk long processes in the construction. Because foundation is is it's this multi-step process where you're not only pouring concrete, but you're making sure that, you know, any plates for structural steel are embedded in the concrete. All the plumbing that needs to go through the concrete is in the concrete. All the electrician, uh, the the electrical stuff usually, which comes in conduit at the foundation stage, is put into the concrete. And you're bringing all of these teams together to make sure everything is done correctly. And then in addition for all of those specific areas, you've got one or more inspections depending on kind of what's going on. Like the the concrete or the foundation itself has without electric and plumbing, I think three or four inspections, I'd have to go back and count, but you've got, you know, you have to make sure it's put in the right place. Then they have to have the engineer come out and make sure it was actually formed up correctly. And then you've got, you know, anyways, you've got more, you've got a bunch of inspections. So once you get the the concrete poured, that's the exciting day, the final, the final pour date, you move into framing. And that's also usually another, I don't know, it, it can go anywhere from a week to three weeks, depending on, if there's steel involved, how big the house is, how busy the crews are, and how many guys are working on the job, and that sort of thing. And at that point, they go in and they frame it all up. And, and one of the things we are doing at that point is making sure that when the HVAC team comes in, that they can run their HVAC. Because one of the things, I, I don't know if it's this way everywhere, but here we don't, we don't hire an engineer to lay out HVAC plumbing and electric. That's all decided on the field. We know where the final product goes. We know where all the plugs are going to go, where all the lights are going to go. So the electrician knows kind of where the wires are going to go. And they come in and do that. Um, Plumber does the same thing. HVAC does the same thing. But, you know, if you think about an HVAC system, you've got ductwork, which, you know, on some of the, some of the trunks can be 16 inches, 12 inches. And so you've got to figure out a way to get them across all of the structural beams that you can't put holes in and that sort of thing. And we do, we do a lot of um, contemporary modern builds that have flat roofs. So we don't have the luxury of just going up into a big pitched roof and running everything. So when we've got the framer out there, what we so do what is do we do with that. Did you, are you, I mean, you just got to find ways to run it between the floors kind of thing. It, well, we, we like to bring the air conditioning from above. We try not to push it up from below every once in a while you're stuck doing that in a very limited situation. We can usually find a solution. Sometimes sometimes it's more challenging than others. And I make it sound like we do it all on site. We actually, when we were in all the engineering, have have looked at everything and know where our challenging spots are going to be and have tried to, to figure it out at that point. But once we're in the field, sometimes things change. I'm trying to think. There, you know, there's different, there's different ways to do it. We usually are using webbed trusses. So as long, sometimes we have to split a trunk off into smaller ones to go through the webs. Sometimes we have to actually cut the trusses and get the the engineer in to let us reinforce it in other ways. There's other ways you can do it. You can put steel in it. You can do all sorts of stuff. You know, sometimes, and you'll you'll see this in production homes. And we we don't do this. We find whatever way we need to find, and it costs what it costs because of the type of houses and the price points we're we're, we're building. But if you've ever been in a house where you see like 
maybe this strange build out in a corner where the wall kind of comes out funny or, well, the, the easiest way you see it is in fur downs. So you see, you see it, you know, if you've got, if you've got a ceiling and there's a dropped area that's, you know, say 12 inches wide and 12 inches deep or 12 inches high, that was probably done specifically to run air conditioned ducting. I mean, sometimes it's done for, for aesthetic reasons, but a lot of, a lot of times it's done for air conditioning. And we just try to get it all up in the ceiling above all that. We're trying not to change the design of the house to run the air conditioning. So, I mean, we usually figure it out without specifics. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so anyway, so get the site ready. You pour the foundation with, with the utility connections into it. Mm -hmm. You frame it up, you run the HVAC piping, electrical wires, what come uh, plumbing as well. What comes, what comes next? So, well, I can tell you what comes next, but before we get there, we've got your, one of your biggest inspections is after all that's done, you've got a framing and what's called an MEP, mechanicals, electrical plumbing inspection that you come, you come and have, have done. And the way we do it is we bring in a third party engineer, a third party engineer that comes and does a full inspection of the entire house. We also have the city inspection, but the thoroughness of the third party, the private company that comes in and does it is much better. And they, they look at everything. Why do you need a third? This is just an Austin thing or? I don't know if it's an, I mean, I don't know if it's an Austin thing. It seems kind of different. Like usually you just deal with the city inspectors. I feel like. Yeah, no, we do. We do third party and what, what the, what the city inspector does is works off the third party list. So if we had, so we take what the third party engineer comes in and does is gives us the list of anything that, that needs to be corrected. And then assuming that it's not a crazy multi-page list, we make the corrections and then call in the city inspector and they walk through and make sure, you know, they do kind of a, what I'll call a little bit more of a light inspection. They'll look and make sure that the fire stops in the right place They'll make sure all the hurricane straps are done correctly and that the right nails are in them and the nail pattern and that sort of thing. And they'll make sure the trusses are done per the per the engineer's plans. But they don't do near the detail of the third party. So and and it's not it's not an expensive the third party inspection is I believe it's under a hundred bucks still. And they can usually bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like seriously, their inspection is cheaper than the city's inspection. And they do three times, four times the work, or at least the, the thoroughness. You know, they give us much better information. So anyway, so, anyway, so we have this big inspection, and that's, that's kind of a huge milestone in, in, in the construction because it's like as soon as that inspection's passed, now we're starting to do the pretty stuff, right? So we're at that point, the next step is to get the sheetrock folks in. Oh, actually, no. One more important step. We've got to get the insulation in the walls before we get the sheetrock. Right, then, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, after, because once you're talking about sheetrock or drywall, because once you go up, you can't really, you, yeah. well, you know, it'd be very costly to start messing with all the yeah. wiring and plumbings again. Yeah, because you have to cut open the walls at that point. Oh, and this is this is kind of a, just a little tip for anybody who does this. What we do before we spray the insulation in is go in and photograph every room and every wall and do a walkthrough video of every room and every wall so that later... If anybody has a question about where some wiring is, where some plumbing is, whatever, we know we can go back and look at pictures of exactly what's behind the sheetrock. And I can't tell you how many times we've done that. It's constant. Yeah, 
I could see why you do that because you don't have the MEP plans <laughs> in California. Yes, yeah. That's what we refer to, Michael. Where's the Where's the wire? Like, we'll look at the electrical plans. Instead. Yeah, we don't have that. Okay, we don't. Yeah. Well, that's so a good anyways. tip for folks that are in states that don't require MEP plans. Yeah, yeah. I and I don't know that it's a bad idea, anyways. I don't. I mean, I don't. It makes it easy because when when I have once the house is sold, a lot of times I get questions for the homeowners, and it's just so much easier to send them a photo than to ask them to read MEP plans because right, right. they yeah. may or may not be able to read them. So anyways. Does, does Austin get into the whole, what's the requirement for installation? Like the, I forgot the numbers, R30, R32, 24, whatever. We have, yes, we've got pretty strict energy code stuff and I should know what those numbers are and I don't. Um, I leave that to my insulation experts, but we do, <laughs> we do all spray foam at this point. So we are, well above what the minimum requirements are. We only buy when we have to have certain U ratings on our windows and we only buy, you know, it's pretty much all you can get here anyways. Nobody's selling stuff that we can't legally put in the, put in the houses. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's R30 at the roof line maybe and R19 on the walls. Although someone's going to, somebody in the comments will correct me. Yeah. So drywall goes up and then when did, when do you start the roofing part of it? Oh, we've already done that. I just okay. skipped it. Yeah, we did. We do part that of, in framing. Part of framing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do. We do. We dry in the roof at framing, and sort of dry in the framing, the roof at framing. We we haven't sealed all of the penetrations or anything necessarily by the time framing's done, but by the time the MEPs are done, it's completely dried in. We don't want any water coming in the house once we start putting drywall in. And the other thing, I'll, I'll make another note about insulation. One of the things we do on all our houses is we insulate all the wet walls, even if they're interior. So the, the, wa- the walls around the bathrooms and between the master and the rest of the house. And we do that for sound attenuation mm. so that those walls are quiet. People don't so like to not, hear You're not water. hearing somebody tinkering. Or- <laughs> that, and you don't hear the water running through the pipes or anything like that. And then the master is, for obvious reasons, we yeah. like that room to be really quiet. So yeah, so we're we're now we're we're doing sheetrock, we're drywalling. That one takes a little while. We've got a couple inspections in there. They we have a nail pattern inspection, and uh, and then it can take a little while because you know they have to do all the mudding and the taping and the floating and all the the fun stuff. Most of the houses I build, we're doing a level five smooth drywall finish where the guys do multiple layers of mud and sanding. So it take it can take them. Mm, about a week and a half, two weeks to do the job, assuming weather cooperates. And then from there, I mean, we're going, we're putting down floors, we're installing the interior doors. We've already ordered the cabinets. We order our cabinets in the in the framing stage. Once Once the framing is up, we order our cabinets. So we're waiting on cabinets. We're doing all the the finish out for the electric and the plumbing. And at some point we've put the roof on. That's not a necessary, like it happens exactly at this time, but, you know, the shingles or the metal roofing or the TPO, whatever we're doing. Does it matter when you put the flooring in or just, you can just, just do it, but make sure it's covered so people are trekking in and out, that's it's still okay? Well, it does matter. We like to, we like to do it as late as possible because otherwise the floors get damaged. But there is still an order to do things like like we like to put down the flooring before we put the baseboards on. Because I, one of my pet peeves is quarter round. And the reason most folks use quarter round is to hide 
because they put the baseboards on, like maybe they've got a bigger baseboard and then they put the flooring down and then they use the quarter round to hide all the imperfections. Well, what we want to do is we want to put the quarter round, I mean the, the flooring and then put the baseboards. So the flooring goes all the way up to the, to the sheetrock. We put it down after drywall and after cabinets. Usually we don't always run our flooring under our cabinets. We shim them up to the same height because it saves on flooring costs for under the cabinets. We shim them up to the same height and then put, put them all in. The goal is to have most of the heavy work done before they go in. But even still, after the flooring goes in, we put ram board down on them, which is a kind of a protective cardboard product with a, it's got some plastic on the bottom so water won't hurt it and that sort of thing because the painters are going to come in with water. And then, so we've got the floors in, the cabinets in, we've installed all the fixtures. And the last thing we do is we bring the painters in at the very end, mm-hmm. which is not everybody does it that way. Sometimes people bring the painters in before they put the flooring in. But what we found with with the level five walls that we're doing that are perfectly smooth, that there's just too many opportunities for damage if we do the painting anytime before we're absolutely done. So the painters come in and they spend a day or two masking everything in the entire house before they start painting. Um, and then they, they've already, they are, I did have them prime earlier, but we prime when drywall's done. But then they come in and they, they usually do first coat, they spray it. And then if they, if they need to do a second coat or a third, they'll, they'll maybe spray it again. But then the final coat we always do with a roller. And the reasoning there is that if, if something happens and we have to cut the wall open or there's some damage or whatever, and then we have to come back and paint again, we're not going to bring the sprayer back in. And if you use the sprayer, it's just so smooth that if you then come back with a roller, you have to do the entire wall. Mm. Because it'll you've got, show. You know, yeah, it'll show because it's a little bit, you know, it's it's a little, the nap on the roller leaves a little bit of a texture. So that's just kind of a little trick that um, most, you know, most people don't even notice and it helps later on down the road. Yeah. Like you said, most, a lot of people probably don't even know or notice the, what's what's involved. So we're doing, we, we get the site, we're ready, we're pouring the foundation, frame it. MEPN, drywall, and all the finishes, tile, flooring, cabinets, and all that. How long does this process, on average, that's just, I know that it ranges, but assuming sure. a, a very standard build? Yeah. In, in the city of Austin, it takes me anywhere from eight to 12 months. Okay. Yeah. And that, a lot of it literally is driven by inspections because we're waiting on the city for a lot of things. And we've got a lot of places in between that we're, that we're stopping. I could probably do the same project in the County in five to six. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the overview. You know what you're doing. How do folks or developers or regular home owners, how do they find and vet a contractor that actually knows what they're doing? What they're doing. Yeah. That's a tricky one. There's a big range in the type of contractors that are out there. Yeah, and actually, I should maybe be more specific. I think there are different types of licenses, right? Like, what kind of license should folks look for? Does it does it matter that much? So Texas does not license general contractors. So there's no there's not a license. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah. I just remember <laughs> that now too. So yeah. So anybody yeah. with a business card that says general contractor. Yeah, pretty much anybody. You know, that's why you got the. 
the variety of the, you know, a guy with a truck on up to somebody who has a, you know, a full business enterprise and they may or may not have insurance. They may, or, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's all gonna, over the place. So how do you know if they have the proper insurance or their, their bond? Cause in California, there's like type yeah, A, B, C, and depends on mm-hmm. what type of license mm-hmm. you, you, you know, some you can handle electrical, some you can't, and you do have to be licensed and bonded. Yeah. Well, our, so I will say we do have certain trades that are bonded. So, our, I mean, not bonded, are licensed. So our um, HVAC contractors are licensed, our electric, our electricians are licensed, and so are our plumbers. I believe that's it. And what does, so, what does yeah. bonded mean for, for folks that don't know? Oh, well, we don't, we don't have bonding. We just have insuring. Right. But what does what bonding mean? Is it just a form of insurance or... Usually a bond is more, this is my understanding. So again, somebody can, can correct me on this. It's more of a, of something you do, at least here, when anytime we need to be bonded, it's, it's paperwork that I believe goes to the city. I don't know. We're gonna have to cut this part out. Cause I don't, I can't answer the bonding question. Cause I don't, I'm not bonded. It's a I mean, is it kind of like a Joe bond where literally you're putting in a money in an escrow? I account think that's what it is. I think, I honestly do think that's what it is, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. So I don't want to tell people that and then be wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, every, I mean I've, every time I've had to buy a bond, I've just done it. Like I've never really, it's like, I have to do it to do certain kind of work with the city. So I just do it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, every state's different and it sounds like the state of Texas feels if the trades are licensed and bonded and you know that's that's good enough so yeah yeah so uh, yeah so anyway so back to your original question about the gcs what i'll say i'll tell you how i get most of my work most of my work comes from uh, a couple a couple places there are the people that have walked through houses that i've built that like them sorry that i don't know if you guys can hear it but the lawn the long crews are out by my office right now. So they've seen my work. They like it. They've contacted me to build for them because of that. And then the second course is referrals. You know, somebody else who's worked with me, who has referred, referred them to me or somebody else who knows me and knows the kind of work I do that, all that kind of stuff. So for me, those are the two biggest sources. And I think those are both pretty good sources, you know, see somebody's work and make sure that working with them is a, is a positive experience. Okay. And let's say we found somebody good. Can you talk a little bit about the different types of contracts an owner was yeah. signed with a GC, whether it's cost plus, TNM, yeah. open book, don't do most, usually don't do TNM by the way, but. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> the ones that I see the most, and I'm sure there's, you know, as with anything, a zillion ways to do it. The biggest ones are cost plus and fixed price. And so cost plus is essentially everything that costs money on the house is marked up by whatever percentage the builder wants to mark it up or by their contract that they do. And that's so, negotiable, mutually agreed upon, basically. Yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever the market. Or at least mutually agreed demands. upon. I don't, yeah, I don't know in, in a lot of markets how, well, I'm sure it's very negotiable depending on the contractor. What would be um, an average markup in Austin or you know, 15, I, 20. I I have heard that there are 10%, 15%. I'll, I'll be honest. I think that if you're working with somebody who's only charging 10 or 15%, they're either not running a very strong business and you may have problems collecting on warranty stuff with them or they're hiding money somewhere else, which, I mean, I'm not saying that that's what they're doing, but, but 
you know, think about any business running at a 10% margin and you've got to understand that in that markup, not only is it supposed to be their profit, but there's probably some overhead in there. So if they're running, if they're charging 10 or 15%, that is super, super lean. And I would be worried, but I know people do do that. And I know people that hire people that do that. And I don't necessarily think all the time their experiences are great, but I'm sure sometimes they are. So why um, would you do cost plus versus a fixed price? Why, why the different models or names for them even? So the fixed, so let me explain a little bit what fixed price is, um, which, I mean, it's fairly obviously, it's very obvious, excuse me, fairly obvious. But what it is, is somebody gives you the plans, you figure out what you're going to charge to build the house as per the plans. The tricky part of, of that is a lot of times the plans come with, come to you and they don't have all the detail in them. So you're kind of making a lot of guesses. So one of the benefits of a fixed cost contract is that there's absolutely no risk in it for the builder because every time somebody spends money, you're just going to make a little bit more money, right? But you're never, you're never on the hook for figuring out what the whole project is going to cost before you start spending money. Whereas with a fixed cost contract, I have to go spend, and I, I do, I, this, is, this is how I'm working. I go through and I spend, you know, 40, 60 hours, whatever that time frame may be, to go through every single detail of the plan and figure out what it's going to cost to build that house. And then I build all my margin and my profit, all that good stuff. I build all that into the cost. The benefit for the homeowner is, is, also, is also there. So really what happens a lot of times, a fixed cost plus contract can be cheaper because there's no risk on my part. So I don't feel like I need to make as, as much money. But then you're dealing, you get, you get this adversarial or you can get this adversarial relationship with a buyer because they're constantly wondering why you're spending money. You know, like, well, why did this cost this instead of this? And it's like, well, because... I think a good example is, why did you go with this plumber when he was more expensive than this plumber? Well, because this plumber does better work. And if we have a warranty claim, he's willing to come back and that sort of thing. So you put yourself into this, this position where you're having to, or you're potentially having to explain every single decision you make to build the house. And the flip of that for a buyer who goes into a fixed price contract is it can be much more, let's, let's call it much more of a delightful experience. They know what they're getting. They know what they're paying. They can just let the builder go do their job and not have to worry about any of the details. So that's kind yeah, of that, it. Just, yeah. It sounds to me like I mean, I grew up in Asia, but you know, say like you go to Walmart and like the sticker on the on the item that's the price you pay versus you go to swap and you got to haggle and this and that and negotiate a bunch of things. So it's yeah, it's a little bit of that. Okay. It's a little bit, yeah. Do you guys use the term open book or, I mean, or we can talk about what TNM means a little bit too. Well, yeah. And so, so I have done, and I, on occasion, depending on the project, like maybe on a remodel, we'll do a cost plus. And I do that all open book. Not everybody does, but I, I figure if I'm going into that relationship and that's the way the relationship is, that the best way to, to keep everybody feeling confident is to let them see absolutely every receipt. So do you usually volunteer that or is it more of an mm -hmm. audit, right? Kind of thing. for mm -mm. the client? Okay. Mm -mm. I just give it to them. So what I do is when I give them a draw request, which is essentially an invoice, I have a copy of every single receipt attached to it so that they know exactly what they're buying. They know that I'm not, you know, going and buying a $30 faucet. Well, there's no $30 faucet. 
but you know what I mean? $30 faucet and charging $50 for it. Now right. I just provide everything. Yeah. And then, so TNM time and material, do you know anybody that does on, on this model or why that's, I, I know the answer, but yeah, why would it be a bad idea for a homeowner or for somebody to do a job or hire a GC on a TNM basis? Well, the biggest reason is if they're doing a TNM basis, I don't really think they know how to do their job because they don't know how to price it. I mean, that's what would scare me about it, right? Like you, there's an expectation that you know what things cost and, and it just is a, it's a, maybe I should just say it's a different level of sophistication yeah, and maybe it'll work for some people. And you're just yeah. completely open yourself to exposure or they could just run up the top, whatever. So. Right, right. And I, I mean, I have heard of people doing that and what they would do is say pretty much like time and materials and it's by the week and you're going to pay me x number of dollars per week we're working on this project but i just i just can't imagine doing that. i don't think that's going to make anybody feel good or sane or you know it's already yeah. for most folks they're already spending more money it's one it's it's one of the biggest purchases yeah. they ever make right and so they want some sort of control over their their budgets yeah, time I mean, and maybe for maybe for a small job or at least yeah. ask them to put a not to exceed amount kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but usually those tend to work out better with with a cost plus. And kind of back to your question about percentages, for anybody who's doing a lot of work who's really busy, on a cost plus the the percentage might change depending on back to your point on the size of the job because there's going to be a minimum right. that they need to make to make it worth their time to go to go do the project. So that's kind of since since it kind of came up with time and materials. No, does Texas do the whole preliminary notice and lien waivers that those kind of paperwork stuff? Not the state does not, but most of the lenders enough of the lenders do it that it's part of our process. You mean the lenders are the one that send out the notice, or you have to send? Well, out we don't. The we don't do the. No, we don't. I'm sorry. We don't do the notices. We do the lien waivers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but we get we get because. And not all of my lenders require it, but we just do it as part of our process. When somebody gets a check, they sign the lien waiver right. that, that they're being paid for the work that they just did. So since we're talking about uh, lien waivers or the banks a little bit, how does that part work? Like, how do you how do you get paid if somebody has a construction loan? So when there's a construction loan, there's a separate relationship between myself as the contractor and the bank. And we sign our own documents and the way it works is that the bank, I send the draw request to the bank and they send the money directly to one of my accounts. So but it doesn't do they come out? The do they come out to actually verify that you've done yes. the work? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they send out an inspector. Again, different banks do it a little bit differently. Usually there's a certain number of inspections built in to the cost of the loan. Other banks don't put that in at all and you just pay them. And it's, I think it's like a hundred bucks per inspection. It's nothing expensive. And they're literally looking to make sure that what you say is done is done. Now, different builders can also do that differently. Like I do mine, I bill as I go for costs that are incurred. Some builders do draw requests based on percentage of completion. I don't know which is better. What I do for me works. So that's the way we do it. Okay. And how long is that turnaround to say from the time you submit the draw requests and the inspector and then actually mm -hmm. the money hitting your bank account? Yeah, because so that you got to pay the subs, right? Yeah, yeah. So that 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 can vary depending on bank, but generally, so this this smaller the bank, the faster that often happens. So, and we we don't use the big guys. We're not using Bank of America. 
I'm trying to think if I've ever had, I don't think I've ever built with Wells Fargo. Most of them are regional size. So it usually takes anywhere from the next morning to a week. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. It's pretty quick. It's pretty yeah. quick. They don't want, they don't want to be the ones holding things up. Um, usually the possible holdup is usually inspector schedules okay. and how quickly they can get somebody out there. And then that inspector has to get their report back to the bank because they're independent. And what about at the end? Like how much should a owner or how does payment holdback work to make sure that, you know, the punch out list or close out is done properly? Yeah. So we, I don't have an allowance for holdbacks in my contract, but generally the way it works is when the house is complete and by complete, I mean, hopefully they've already got all their punch out done. It's a hundred percent, but a lot of folks do a 10% holdback. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, no, this is great stuff. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, they don't they don't know what goes on behind the scenes, obviously, or behind the curtains. A lot of times they just hear about horror stories about contractors taking the money and run yeah. or, you know, crappy work kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I'd like to spend a little bit more time too, digging deeper, like behind the scenes, how does the project management aspect work because you got so many different trades and subs that mm-hmm. do wiring plumbing and hvacs and then the, the grading and whatever and like you mentioned earlier what do you do when somebody gives you the plans and it's incomplete or there's site conditions that always come up that doesn't quite match yeah yeah this that's when it gets fun right so what we do is we get the plans, we do all of our pricing from the plans, and we try to make it as complete as possible, right? I mean, this is where experience comes in. I've got, I'm building from the ground up, which is different than doing remodels, although I do do remodels, so it's kind of a different situation. When you're building from the ground up, you probably know almost every everything that you can run into fairly reasonably if you've got experience. Like there's really, the surprises that you get are oh, I said, or in the plans, it said we were going to do concrete floors, but we really want to do hardwood floors. I mean, and that's not a crisis. That's just, those are selections, right? With remodels, you get into a little bit of a different situation because you don't know what you're going to see when you open up the walls sometimes or or the floor or whatever it is. So, So we don't usually run into big gotchas on that on a new build because we're doing everything brand new. But the project management side, that was kind of a twofold question. The project management side is, I mean, it can be challenging. It depends on your market, of course. In Austin, we're we're super busy. We've we've been in, I feel like, a real estate boom since I moved here in 1989. So the good trades are going to be busy. So a lot of it is just kind of keeping them abreast of what's going on and where you are in the project and having, having... good solid guys that if you can build relationships with them, that they're the ones who like, this is my roofer. And so he knows when I'm starting a new project and he'll swing by on occasion and check and see where it is and see if he needs to do anything. I mean, obviously it involves a lot of phone calls and text messages. It's usually not done by email. These guys are out in the field. They're working. That's not their their preferred way of communications in a, in a lot of instances. Are there um, softwares or tools that you're using like Asana or Slack or Yeah. Whatever? So I've gone through, I, I used to use one of the big residential builder proprietary software. 
apps. And what I found was that for the cost of it, it didn't make sense because take these guys are not going to come off of text or phone calls, at least not in my market. Now, in some markets they might, but in my market they're not. They're not. They're not going to load an app up on their phone and use it. They're just not. So it was it was kind of a dream of mine at once that we could consolidate it all, all the communication, all that good stuff. And I've just I've just let it go. It's not how they work. I need to walk into their world so that they can do their jobs and get on to the next job and, you know, be excellent for me, quite frankly. And if I'm trying to force them to do something that's just out of their wheelhouse, why, like, then I just become a pain and they don't, I don't want to say they don't need me. (laughs) I mean, I would like to think that they enjoy doing my work, but there's plenty of construction out here. If I am too much of a pain, they're just going to be like, forget it, you know? So you kind of have to meet them where they are. And I think that's outside of like corporate environments. That's just the way most people have to work. And you just have to understand that, that in this world, that means phone calls and text messages, Okay. you know? And stay on the change order aspect of it a little bit. How can a property owner discern whether if it's a legit change order or if it's just something that, you know, maybe the GC underbid or they're just trying to hit you up for more more money. Yeah, I mean that that goes back to choosing the right contractor at the beginning, somebody that knows how to price a job. I mean, in in my situation, the only time we have change orders is if if there is a phys- there's an actual change. The only time I'll do a change order is if so. Let's say I'm trying to think of an of a good example. I really actually don't do very many of them. If we put an allowance in for a tile that the that the homeowner is going to go way over, I'll do a change order for that. But it's really more of a billing thing. So like maybe I maybe we put in that uh, the kitchen backsplash was going to be twenty dollars a foot, and they pick out something that's three hundred dollars a foot. You know, I'll do a change order for that to give them the new price because that becomes the contract for the additional money. Mm-hmm. But for if they're if we're doing if we're running the electric per the plans, there shouldn't be a change order. Yeah, no. You know? So it sounds. I mean, it sounds like you right. You you run a real tight scope of work, and but I guess say the plans the plans are you know in those cases the plans are accurate. You, everybody knows what to do. Mm-hmm. What what about what if the plans are like your the architect wasn't up to snuff or something like that? Do you? start you still still go in and work on it and figure it out along the way or do you say no we're not gonna, we're not i'm not calling any trades or scheduling any subs until we get some of these things clarified yes we try to get things clarified um usually that's more of a respect for the trades right like i don't want to waste their time and it also wasting their time wastes wastes the client's money um it's a lot even if it's under a change order it's a lot cheaper to do it right the first time, the old adage, right? So if we're, let's say, let's say we'll go back to electric. We've got electric plans. Maybe the architect did it just right. But when the client starts walking through the house, they're wanting to move all the plugs. And and this does happen. This happens a lot. They're like, oh, well, I want to tell you where to put all the lights. It's like, I want a 220 for my Tesla. <laughs> right, right. But it's all on the plans. So one of the things we do is we do a walkthrough with the client at the end of framing, like when all the electric is run and all that good stuff. We, we do it beforehand and they do some of it, but they usually, they usually don't start making those changes until they start seeing boxes on the wall. 
But so before we close up the walls, we do a walkthrough and give them an opportunity to come in and tell us everything that they want to move or change. And then we write up a change order. I get with the electrician and figure out what he's going to charge to do it. You know, so I'm not just, you know, pulling numbers out of the air. And then we come in and do it all at once. Really, the goal is really to eliminate as much pain for everybody as possible. And that comes with managing the work in a way that it's not, oh, I had to change this, this day, this, another day, this, another day, this, another day. I mean, I think that's, I don't, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of our process and how we do it. You know, I know a lot of folks, if you're doing a cost plus job, you know, they make a lot of money on the change orders, but like you shouldn't be running your business planning to make the money on your change orders. That's just kind of a, if the client wants to change something, they need to have a, a, a method to do it. And you have to have a method in your business to be able to charge for it and document it. So, yeah, yeah I mean, what I'm hearing you say is just, you know, there there is a lot of communication and a lot of details that you have to be on top of things. You know, it goes from, you know, whether it's spec or custom, it goes from ideas in somebody's head to, you know, a game of telephone to the architects and translate it onto paper that a GC has to read and, you know, divvy up the jobs to the trades to, you know, the whole thing has to, has to translate somehow. Yeah. So it yeah. Just, there's a lot and, of details to be, to stay on top of. Yeah. And, you know, the goal is always to build somebody the house that they really want. Right. So that's, that's really the end goal. And it's always best to have everything documented. I mean, it's, it's best for, for me as the builder. It's best for my electrician who I may not be standing there when he's doing stuff. It's best for the client because they know exactly what was agreed upon. And if you, for a lot of folks, they skip that step. They don't want to do the change orders. It's, yeah. you know, it slows things down, but it really is, it's a great tool. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. What are some other common issues or disputes between the GC and the owner? Most of them, so I, I think the biggest thing I see is unmet expectations, you know, so so where that comes up is maybe maybe something was designed a certain way or there's a finish somebody's doing or whatever. Let, I'll, I'll use, you know what I'm going to use? I'm going to use stucco as an example for this because there's different finishes of stucco. Right, rough. It's um, yeah. And so like the architect will just say in many cases, stucco, right? And I've seen situations where the stucco job was done and it didn't meet the client's expectations because either it was rougher than they wanted or it wasn't the quality they wanted because there's, you know, a huge range. It's a, it's a, it's definitely a handmade product or a hand finished product. So what I like to do is before, and I don't know if it drives my clients crazy, but it puts us all on the same page. I'll go send them to houses that that specific contractor did. That's, you know, that stucco guy did of the different finishes and the different colors and let them put their eyeballs on it so that they can select exactly what they want. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes like with a, with stucco, if a rough stucco is cheaper or yeah, it's cheaper than a really smooth, a really smooth one. Right. And so sometimes it adds cost to it, but they then understand what they're buying and they can make that decision. I can say, look, we can do this, but this, this other style was in the cost in the bid. And this one is, you know, 15 grand more. Do you still want to do it? And they've got all the tools and the information they need to make their decisions. And this um, is before you actually start the work though, right? Yes, like, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, it comes down to both parties or com- com- clear communication, both parties understanding or what's 
the other person is thinking or what they mean by when they say stucco, for example. Right, right. It just it's just a matter of making sure everybody's on the same page. How about know? on the other side where for again for for the owners, sometimes we don't see this, but what are some common issues that come up or conflicts, challenges, however you want to put it, between yeah. the GCs and the between the general contractor and the subcontractors? The general contract. So the owners should never really be party to that. Right. I meant, I yeah. meant like just because we don't see it with, because you're doing a great job, but just for, yeah. for curiosity, for understanding. Um, you know, that's going to vary depending on, on your trades. I work, most of the guys that I work with, I've been working with for years. So we understand, they understand what I expect. I understand the kind of work that they can do. You know, you don't ever want to hire a level five sheetrock guy if he can only do level three work, right? So part of it's that, but really the biggest one is they were supposed to be here this day. They didn't show up. Oh yeah. Or, what you, what you, I mean, somebody yeah. got drunk or have a hangover. What do you Yeah. Do or that? their, or their car broke down. I can't tell you how many cars break down, you know, but so, you know, or they didn't meet their deadline. You know, it's like, okay, so you didn't show up when you were supposed to show up and now you're a week behind. And the problem is, is I've scheduled other people behind you and now you're messing with my timeline. What do you do? You know, that's a tricky one. A lot of times we just wait and ask them not to do that again. You know, it's like, it's, and sometimes things happen, right? They're finishing another job or the weather or whatever. So you have to be somewhat flexible. Again, it make, this is where it comes in handy, having really good relationships, because it always helps to be on their, you know, their top priority list. But say, for example, earlier we're talking about baseboard and flooring, right? The mm-hmm. flooring guy is delayed and you tell, we have very clear communication and we tell the baseboard guy, hey, we're delayed. But the baseboard guy goes, that's great, but I got another job next week. Yeah, they usually find a way to, I mean, you may have to wait a couple days. I think the okay. longest I've ever waited for anybody, and it was because I really didn't want to switch trades, was five days. Okay, so it's yeah. just everything kind of just yeah, it could, and there it could escalate and start whiplashing. And down the thing the, is, down is the line. all their jobs are doing that. All their schedules are like they're they're not looking at you know a Gantt chart or a timeline on their phone and going, oh, I'm going to be there next Monday. That goes back to if you use them enough, they one they talk they talk to each other. So you know, like my framer and my roofer talk constantly because their job is relying on the other person's job. So all those guys are picking up the phone and saying, hey, where are you on, you know, the PAL Circle project or where are you on this? So they'll, they'll completely sometimes just cut me out of the loop and communicate themselves and know when to show up or when not to show up. You right. know, they just, they just juggle it. Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, I, I grew up in a manufacturing business. So a lot of times I do look at things just as a business or as a supply chain, right? Like this, to the, building a house is there's a finished product at the end of it, which is a house versus, you know, we, we used to make plastics, but it's just funny to me. I guess it's the unique thing is you can't have inventory or you can't have like redundancies. Like it's just all based on time. And if something happens, like your time is gone. You can't have, I mean, I suppose you could, you could have an inventory of, uh, electricians, <laughs> but you know, it wouldn't be very practical, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, well, because plus once you've started a job with an electrician, they've got to come back several times. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, you don't want to switch electricians in the middle of a job. That's just a nightmare. Like who's going to carry the warranty? You know, they're having to figure out what somebody else did, which shouldn't be that hard, but sometimes it's harder than you think, or if they have to troubleshoot somebody else's work, 
you know, it's just, I mean, I think the, the key is find guys that are good. Like the cheapest isn't necessarily the best. I, I see so many people who I'm on some Facebook groups where people are constantly looking for trades and they're like, I want this under the cheapest, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, why do you think you always have to keep looking for somebody? Like if they're good and it's a busy market, they're making money. Oh. Like their time is valuable and, and my time is valuable. And to not have to fix things constantly is worth it for me. Like I want to, I want to work with other competent professionals. Yeah. So final thought on this for folks that either they want to do it themselves or they're, they're curious about because a lot of states you can, as owner, you mm-hmm. can pull permits yourself, right? Yeah. For somebody that wants to do that, or they say, you know, I'm not paying the 25, 50% markup, whatever I can, I can do it. What advice or caution would you have for them? I think it's more advice than caution. I don't, you know, I don't think what we do necessarily is incredibly hard. It is project management, budget management. And when there's a client, you roll in the, the client management to it. It's, it can be incredibly time intensive, you know, and they're also, if they're doing their own home, they're also making all the selections um, and they're also emotionally involved, right? It can be incredibly time intensive. They may be in a situation where what their expectations of what's going to be done is different because it hasn't been communicated in the language of that trade. And I don't mean English and Spanish. I mean, they asked for something and the trade understood it and they went and did it. And it's not really what the client wanted because they didn't, that's not really what they meant, if that makes sense. And then the other thing is the hardest part is good trades. Like it's really, it's going to be really difficult to find a really great plumber to do the job that when you're done with the house, if you have problems, we'll come back. A really great electrician, you know, so you're kind of at the mercy of who will work for a homeowner, which a lot of these guys won't because because there's so much else that comes along with it because it's their own house, they're inexperienced, and they're emotional. So, I mean, I would never tell somebody not to do their own project, but I don't necessarily think they're going to save the money they think they're going to save. And it may make them a little crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, you're sometimes you're kind of hurting cats. And there are some yeah, days you wake up and you're like, why can I not move any one of these thousands of balls forward? Yeah, it's true. I mean, ultimately, you know, it is a business and there's a lot of different people and moving parts involved. And they're uh, especially, yeah, especially when you're dealing with people, there are just a lot of possibilities of life happening or things, things go wrong. So, yeah. but, you know, I definitely appreciate it of you taking the time to, I mean, there's so, so many good nuggets that people probably doesn't, doesn't even understand or know that that goes on behind the scenes. They just, you know, they, they watch a 30 minute mm-hmm. uh, episode on HTV. Like, Oh, it's building a house. It's, it's, it's cool. It can't be that hard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you know you're doing it, it's not – I mean, sometimes there are difficult parts of it, but it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. But you do have to know, you know, what's the order of things? When do – you know, you want it done right and in the right order, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. you screw up your HVAC system, you're in another – you know, you could have an overage of fifteen, thirty thousand $30,000 depending on the house. Mm-hmm. So – Cool. Well, are you ready for our groundbreaker lightning round questions? Sure. What do you do for fun? Oh, what do I do for fun? I like to be outside. So, and I love to travel, although, you know, we're sitting in the land of COVID right now. So there's less travel, 
but in the before times and hopefully the after times, at least once a month, I like to go somewhere new and interesting. I've been able to do it a little bit during COVID. It's just been by car. I know a lot of folks are flying around, but I'm not flying around. And then, of course, I hang out with this nugget that's sitting on my lap right here, my dog. I play tennis. Oh, Not super well, but I still play it. And I bought some roller skates, so I've been roller skating. I did not know that. I I played tennis growing up, but kind of gave it up after having some wrist and shoulder issues, so... Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to stay mostly injury free, but like I said, I'm not good. So I'm not super competitive. It's just more of, you know, it gets my head out of everything else and can go and uh, like, I like golf, but I'm incredibly bad at golf. I like sports that are kind of, there's a lot you can do personally by yourself to improve. And I like, I like games with strategy or things with strategy. And I think, you know, tennis, golf, those kinds of things. I, I actually used to do a lot of cycling. I don't, I never raced, but I did a lot of cycling and that, but there's, there's actually strategy in those things. Well, not the cycling, not recreational, but competitive. Yeah. What is your favorite app? Oh, my favorite app. Well, I mean, other than Instagram and Twitter, which is a dirty little habit of mine, my favorite work app is things three. I'm sure someday it'll be things four. And it's basically a to-do list app. And I've got it on my phone, on my computer, on my iPad, and I follow fairly strictly David Allen's getting things done methodology. And so I have like, like if my things app, if I, if the cloud goes away and all my to do's go away, I am in trouble. So I guess probably that. The special unique thing about it is, is the getting things done method. Yeah, that? well, I ha- you have to set up your own system. I, it, it's core things is a to-do list, right? It's a to-do list with reminders and dates and that sort of thing. There's a bunch of to-do list apps out there. I particularly like this one. It's completely customizable. I love the interface. It's clean. It's easy. I'm I'm completely in a Mac, iOS, iPhone, iPad environment. So it's native or not native, but it's only for that. They don't have it for Windows or Android. But it's just the one that I use. I've used other ones, and I just need to be able to customize it for how I work. Okay. That's important. And I'll, I'll throw another app in there. The other thing is my Evernote. I've been completely digital. I don't. I live paper-free for the most part. I mean, I have plans and stuff that I have to print. But as soon as I end up with a piece of paper in my hand, it gets either scanned or captured on my phone, goes straight into Evernote. I can pull any receipt I've ever had since I think I started Evernote in after a sales tax audit in 2007, maybe. Wow. And I still have everything in there and can okay. find it. Cool. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Mm, I think the biggest thing is kind of just to that slow and steady wins the race. I mean, Find something that you enjoy. It doesn't have, you don't have to love it. Like this whole, like follow your passion to your career. I think that's the the easiest way to hate what you love. I do enjoy real estate, you know, figure out what you're good at and just go for it and, you know, be smart about it, but go do it. And don't constantly waste your time trying to figure out how to do something you're bad at, because I just don't believe that most people are able to do that. Like I'm never going to be a strict task oriented person, right? Like I'm not gonna, I, I follow checklists because I have to, it's, it's something I absolutely have to do to keep it all together. But like I am classic ADHD. I like things that move quickly. I can do, I can build houses because they go from dirt to being beautiful in eight months. But if you give me a project that's a 
five-year project? What's your five-year plan? And what are you going to do at year one and year two, year three? Like that to me is just too much. So I think find what you're good at. Hopefully what you're good at, you enjoy and just do it. That's great advice. And um, I do try to tell myself that, but it's not always easy to take to be patient instead of going out and doing a bunch of deals that, you know, maybe the numbers work, but maybe there's a lot of pitfalls or yeah, things that that might come up and bite you sort of thing. So, well, I mean, the best example for me is I've been, I've owned in one way or another, my own business since I was 29 and I can't do accounting to save my life. And the first hire I ever made was a bookkeeper. And, you know, even today I fall into the trap of, oh, well, I really need to learn how QuickBooks does X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, I don't. I'm never going to be good at it. I'm never going to understand it. Pay somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. because that frees up that energy and that time to go do something I am good at. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of running your own business, thank you so much for sharing with us about how to run a general contracting business. You know, we sure. talked about how a house gets built, how the actual different types of contracts in a, con- a, a contractor faces or, or presents to the owner. And, a little bit behind the scenes on things that come up, the project management and how to manage when things don't go well, let's put it that way. Lynn Curry, thank you so much for sharing with us. How can folks more find out more about you? Well, my company website is starlingdevelopment.com and that's starling with an A like the bird. And then I also do YouTube videos and you can find me under Lynn Curry Builds and that's L-Y-N-N-C-U-R-R-I-E builds and uh youtube channel i've got a website but the website doesn't stay up to date as much as the youtube channel and uh, there i basically just document build projects so you can see all sorts you can, there, i have a framing video if somebody would like to learn a little <laughs> bit more about framing <laughs> so. okay great great well thank you so much until next time my name is jason Shaw with shovel ready signing off This has been another great episode of Shovel Ready. Please subscribe and consider working with us. Follow us for more tips and let us know what you think of the show on Instagram at Jason underscore Shovel Ready.